50 years ago, people gathered in a small park in Carbondale, Colorado to celebrate art, music, and community. That gathering became the Carbondale Mountain Fair. Hear the voices, stories, and sounds as we take you on a journey of 50 years of the fair. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Welcome to the Carbondale Mountain Fair. The Mountain Fair is one of those shining examples of how good we can do given the chance. Here in this place where we value each other's differences, where we celebrate together in peace and joy. This is a shining example to the world. Look around you. These are the people who are being the change they wish to see. All of you are creating the sort of life we want for everyone. If you look around these valleys, there's such a huge aggregate of good heart, good intention, and good will. In modern times, this is a shining example of all of us at this fair, every possible kind of person, every possible age, and we have the most wonderful time together. We have a sacred duty to have fun and keep the vibration of the planet up. Let the sound of love surround you, beating like the heart in each of us. of the fair has not changed, in my opinion. That feel-good, positive energy of people getting along together despite any differences, um, that still remains. And that's, that's the heart of the whole thing. That's the critical aspect. It is a celebration of life. It, it is an honoring of we are all here for there's that magnetic quality of the mountain and the confluence of the rivers and the, the, the lifestyle here that everybody is here for. And that is what we celebrate. And I think we also celebrate the coming together and the working together to create 
what this incredible community is. And, and that, that's the essence of, of Mountain Fair, is that celebration of life and the honoring of, of each and every person who has something to contribute. Lori Loeb, mother of the Mountain Fair and master of its drum circle. In 1972, Lori was a recent arrival to Carbondale, Colorado, part of the vanguard of hippies and artists arriving in the Colorado mountain towns after the explosion of the 60s. What she and others created endures to this day, 50 years later, and not just endures, but thrives, defining a town and a way of life. What makes a place what it is? What traditions and rituals strengthen the soul of a community? How do we discern what is worth bequeathing to the next generation? The story of the Carbondale Mountain Fair is one that answers these and other important questions. While today's world is changing quickly, the Mountain Fair surviving and thriving for 50 years reminds us that some things are worth honoring and passing on. Carbondale and its mother mountain once belonged to the Nooch, known also as the Utes. The white invader took their land, shattered their traditions, and confined them to reservations. It's a deep wound we may never heal, but the story of the Mountain Fair suggests that we can, that we can seek and find a greater good that honors Mother Earth and benefits all beings. The story of the Mountain Fair begins in the late 60s and early 70s. Carbondale was a far different town than it is today. Only about 600 people lived in a town with no stoplights, dirt streets, rowdy coal miners, and ranchers with long family histories in these high mountain valleys. Into all this tripped the hippies. Some were ski bums fleeing an already expensive Aspen. Others were recent graduates from the big universities across the Front Range. Some were refugees from Texas, Chicago, and California. What they found, of course, was a cheap paradise in the mountains, just down the road from a booming ski town, and just up the road from a hot springs resort town. What they also found, at first, was a suspicion, if not a disdain, from the locals. Those were tenuous years, as the different factions learned how to live with each other. Here are Fred Williams, Ron Leach, and Barb Bush. We were very, very much a coal mining town in those days. Coal train coming up, come through town twice a week. Morrison Knutson trucks were hauling coal 24-7 from Redstone down here to the coal loading docks out on 100 Road. Uh, when these coal miners would get out of, their, uh, out of the coal mine off their shift, they would take a shower there in the bathhouse and get all cleaned up, and then they'd go into Carbondale and start drinking. But these guys could not, you know, in the shower, you can't get that coal dust off of your eyelashes. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, you can clean yourself up, but the coal dust stays around your eyelashes, and it looks just like mascara. And so that took me, honest to God, about a year to figure that out. These guys were all huge, tough, hard-drinking, and there was a bunch of them, and they all wore this mascara, and I... You know, remember, I was coming out of Southern California in the 1960s. I didn't know what to make of that. So finally somebody tuned me up on what was going on there with the coal dust. We, the 20, 30-year-olds were from other places, were quite the oddity. We were very interesting. <laughs> um, but I think that we, you know, we helped the town change and grow and um, um, made it so much more interesting than it was. And... And it just keeps on going that way, which is fabulous. It wasn't that the hippies tore down the privacy shack at Penny Hot Springs and started soaking naked. It wasn't that they often smelled kind of funny. 
It wasn't even that they started slowly taking over everything. It was just that Carbondale hadn't yet been touched by so much change so quickly. Here are Brenda Buchanan, Wick Moses, Jim Ryan, and Ron Leach. And there was sure a bunch of uh, people in their 20s that had this idea of going back to the to the old days and to the mountains and making things themselves and being versatile and primitive. So the mountains there, let's see, they started right up with that, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a little woodstocky. Hippies. <laughs> I'd say probably everybody who came here fit into the hippie hippie ethos. I mean, we all grown up in the it was grown up in the sixties. Yeah, and there was really a you know a strong sense of that, and you know the whole the whole concept of you know well the whole concept of Woodstock, you know, everybody coming together doing this big music event and people pitching in and helping was sort of a template for this. So it was, you know, it was, it was a union of, of like souls, let's put it that way. So a group of us faculty members, probably four or five of us, after we bucked hay one afternoon, decided to go into the Black Nugget and, you know, and have a beer to cool off. And we came into the Nugget, and it was really kind of like the the classic scene you see in the Westerns, you know, the guy, the, the outsiders come walking in, all the guys at the bar, their eyes go click, 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 and they look at the right, look to the right, and go, oh, <laughs> really weird. And of course, you know, one of the, I had a, I had a lot of care at the time, and uh, also we had a black guy named Farron Doss who had a big fro, so you know, we came in there, and it was really, you know, it was the kind of thing where they were very cool to us. They did serve us, of course. I bartended at the Black Nugget in 73, 74. So I know all the ranchers, coal miners, hippies by name, and they're all my friends, really. And they interacted. There was never a fight. There was no no problems. Carbondale was like a caterpillar in those days. It was just opening up and being a butterfly. One summer, a traveling Chautauqua show paid a visit to Carbondale. They had contacted the uh, CMC and uh, said that they wanted to bring the Chautauqua here. And there was a woman working for CMC who um, was going to be the organizer. But two weeks before the event, she was in a car accident and couldn't perform her duties. And George Stricker, who was the director of community ed for CMC, um, knew me, and I guess he knew that I had organized a couple of crafts fairs up in Aspen in the 60s. So he came to me to see if I would do it, and I said I would. And uh, interestingly, nothing had been done prior to two weeks before the event. So that's how... uh, Chautauqua came to to us. The key thing I noticed was the townsfolk had really started to come around and realize that you know we were actually we were not we were not a threat that we actually were into doing things and we were beginning to gain acceptance. So you know that felt you know it really felt like that was kind of the icebreaker. We had about twenty booths. At the at the time, uh, we had a mayor, Charlie Kelly, who was a bronze sculptor, sort of in the style of Remington, and so he had a booth. And uh, it, at that time, this was in the early 70s, 
um, there were quite a few artists moving into town because um, there was a lot of uh, affordable rental space here. Um, so there were there were potters and uh, the the near new the Rebecca's had a a booth of their quilts and uh, the Boy Scouts had a booth and they sold painted rocks and corn and seed necklaces. Um, there was a, a fly tying uh, booth and he was demonstrating, which was part of the, the philosophy of the Chautauqua. Um, and Chautauqua brought in uh, Hopi weavers as well as some, some performing artists. Uh, CRMS had a strong relationship with the, with the Hopi nation and so um, one of the weavers whose uh, daughter, I believe it was, was uh, in attendance at CRMS, was the uh, weaver. Who, and she did demonstrations and sold, sold her work. After that first Chautauqua, there was a local group that thought they could do better with a hometown festival. I thought that, it would, that we might be able to... Uh, bring these different factions of town together through the arts. And so, and you know, and having the mayor involved in this was really um, very helpful. And, and the Rebecca's as well. So we had some buy-in, you know, from, from long-term older residents. And it came before our town council anyway, and... The vote was a split, three to three, to about whether to allow this activity to happen in town. And <laughs> Kelly himself was an artist. And since he was the mayor and he was an artist, and he got to do the vote because it was a tie. Deciding vote. And so it was because of him and his one vote, and here we are 50 years later. Lori Loeb had decided that we needed to set up a board for the, for the fair and actually structure it. And so she uh, ended up having a meeting at her house, and myself uh, and Steve Amio and Linda Heller and Carol Carr and J.E. DeVilbus, who was our lawyer, John Hoffman and her, attended. And we discussed exactly what we wanted to do. And what we really, the idea was to have the fair actually generate some income for the community and for events and also to uh, pay musicians. I don't remember the year, but I can remember about three of us, four of us sitting in Lori Loeb's living room to get the, get the fair going. We had gone through the Chautauqua Festival, and that's what triggered the uh, the idea of having a fair here. Um, I have to think about it, of which of us were just, but I can remember vividly just sitting in Lori Loeb's living room and saying, okay, we have to do this. Well, Wick, Wick was on, on the board. Um, Chris Landry, who was a weaving loom builder. His wife was a weaver and, uh, he was, he was there. Jan Edwards, who was a potter. Um, Larry Tripp might have been involved. That first fair after the Chautauqua was pretty basic. I believe Rick and I started right away the omelet booth and started making omelets. And it was a pretty big hit. <laughs> so, you know, it always helped to have a keg of beer in the back of the omelet booth to uh, 
dole out a few glasses of beer to people that we knew, although it was illegal, but we made sure we always had. Of course, Rick and I always had to taste it frequently. So it, there was always a line all the way to the street. I played in a group, and I don't remember. I can I have no idea who it was. It was, uh, I believe it was a cousin. I'll probably get called out on this. I think it was Gala Duckowitz relatives from back east came out and there was a fiddle player and a guitar player and I played bass and I think we made some pretty corny music for the fair. There wasn't any of this professional stuff. It was, as I remember, it was pretty much homebrew music. And we had uh, that first time, which I, again, I think it was the second mountain fair, we just slapped together some boards and had some tables and this and that and uh, um, got through the fair. But in subsequent fairs, we, we built a, a, a pretty sturdy booth that we designed so it could be taken apart, put back together easily and had uh, uh, better equipment. And uh, uh, we operated a, a vertical spit and we shaved the meat off, but also uh, fried up portion control pieces of meat uh, because there was no way you could keep up with the demand with just unless you had six of those machines. It didn't take long though for those involved to notice the changed attitude of the locals toward them. After the first fair we realized that uh, it was a good way to bring people together because people people didn't know much about one another when it came to the, the new element in town. And so it, uh, it was a reinforcement that, you know, we're all alike. You know, we have many more commonalities than differences, and that the differences are more or less superficial. The key ingredient in all this was a whole group of people went, were highly motivated to work together to pull it off, and all of us came together, gave of our time, and, you know, we put together this event, you know, mostly because we really wanted to just have a, a good time. And the town, really, the key thing, too, was that the town was really willing to go along with it. But the other thing was they looked at us and they thought they kind of adopted us as kids. You know, it's like, oh, these are these are people who are really fun. And even though they have long hair and may smell a little funny, you know, they're fun. And they're really nice. And they're putting in effort. And... Uh, you know, we didn't, I think the thing was that, you know, the re, they realized that we weren't there to just take, that we were also there to give. There were many festivals around the country that started more or less in the wake of Woodstock. Not all of them have survived, though, so it's relevant to ask, well, how does a free festival survive and thrive in a small mountain town with a limited pool of volunteers and no corporate sponsorship? There are probably as many answers to that as there are people who have fallen in love with Carbondale's signature event. I think for me, it's not just another fair because Carbondale is not just another town. Um, it's a reflection of the town of Carbondale. It's our town's party. It's Carbondale's party. And, you know, I, it belongs to us. It belongs to the people of Carbondale. We just wanted to have fun and go back to the country and kick up our heels and do drugs and have sex and dress up. And, and this, was a, this is kind of a, 
good place to do it in Carbondale. This is the best small town fair in the state. Well, I'm not one to plunge into exceptionalism, but it's impossible when you're talking about Mountain Fair because there's nothing like it. It's where I found my tribe. I didn't find my tribe on the Hyman Street Mall in Aspen. I found my tribe at Sopras Park in Carbondale. It was so, it was like really free and artistic and and just an incredible fair, you know, and, and that was my really first introduction to Carbondale was fair. I think that's a big part of what life's about is is sharing good food and music with, with the people you love. Such a wild and and weirdly wonderful time. There's really something special about us all pitching in together for a really, a really strong community effort. And there's no, the negative energy just almost doesn't exist. It just sort of seemed like a complex self-adapting system that was just mesmerizing to me the way it came together without any real organizational chart or anybody yelling, hey, you need to go do this. People just sort of did it. And I really was captivated by that. It's something that I only found in Carbondale. Um, whether it has to do with Mother Sopris and the energy and the vortex and the thing, but the people we needed showed up just when we needed them to show up. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. It's like hometown homemade festival. And I think that's sort of the spirit that has always been there, even though uh, it has ballooned in size and number. Messy vitality was this term that people always kind of use to refer to uh, describe Carbondale back during that time. And, uh, you know, it was kind of this funky little town that was growing up and a lot of people were moving here and, uh, you know, it really started to change and different people were coming in. So, you know, I kind of take those two words and maybe split them up and, you know, the fair, sure, it's kind of messy, but oh, so vital. But that through the years, what has sustained and grown the fair to me is the breadth of the community that it encompassed and everyone welcomed and loved and hugged everyone. And it didn't matter, you know, what your employment was, what your background was, if you were a lawyer, if you were a cowboy, you know, it didn't matter. Politics had nothing to do with it. You worked with your neighbors, no matter how you may have disagreed with them in other ways. At Mountain Fair, everything came together and everyone was a community. And that yeah. to me was what made it happen. Yeah. That's, that's what makes an exceptional community like we live in. We had a town of extremely creative, hardworking, fun-loving, um, town-invested, people-invested, um, family-invested people who lived in the town and still live there. And I think the fair is such a perfect representation of that. And I think that has to do mostly with with the nature of Carbondale and with having Mount Sopris looming, looming over us. And I really think that Mount Sopris has a significance to people who live here and people who visit here that is unquantifiable 
but undeniable. I, I think people react to that. They react to the fact that Carbondale is just a supremely friendly place and to that sort of spiritual side of it, which I think is influenced by the presence of Mount Sopris. So I, I think it's true. It's not, it's not just a party. Um, even people who come mainly because of the reputation of the party leave with a, a different understanding and I think having that local flavor of us and our our feelings about it, and that ki- that kind of in a way generates a, a vibe that people really pick up on. You know, plus the you know plus the fact that it, it's so well set up and it's free. I mean, that's but I mean, what you know, it's almost like what's not to like. But the main thing is, I think that you know, because we have such a good community, and we have so many people who are into it. That that you know that makes it so that it's not just a bunch of people who are hired and paid money to come and and do whatever you know all the you know the the picking up and everything else, but it's all of us who are volunteering, and that spirit I think is something that you know it it, it resonates with people. It was actually felt like a community where everybody was working together toward a common goal of of being a community. And so the fair was was uh, kind of the cherry on top, really. For for me, there was just a sense of love and joy, you know, precious, just precious. And um, it kind of, I think, another word that comes to mind is dignity, like it honors the dignity of the human spirit. It's a fabulous art show. Um, it's a fabulous music venue. It's uh, great food, amazing food, um, and, 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 and in a magical community, a community that's always been sort of magical. And, it, you know, it's sort of, I don't know where the unicorns are stashed in Carbondale. We looked for them for years, but there's always just, it's just, it always has been a sort of magical place, and the Mountain Fair just you know, carry, carries that, that theme right on through. Um, there are so few fights. I mean, people get along. You know, you can't. That's a lot of people to put in that confined an area and for as smoothly as it goes, you know? That's and true. Everybody just sort of, and, and everybody just sort of walks around with a smile on their face. It's pretty great, you know? And I don't, you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's the fairy dust we sprinkle on people. I have no idea. <laughs> I think it's cosmic. <laughs> I think that there's something about, um, like, the quantity of creative attention that gets uh, stirred up and focused all on one thing and um, that it's not like that there there's plenty of there's plenty of drinking and getting wasted and that kind of party um, but there's there's an intention to create a, a an experience and I think all of that attention kind of gets twisted and braided together with the with the astrology and the gravity of the spheres at that moment and causes something totally magical to happen. That's what it feels like to me. That is magic. That is spirit. That is humanity at its, at its highest. 
and all of this under um, underground of history and planning and and work and volunteerism and the connection to all of the causes of our times that have grown into and with the fair. And, and, and that is all of that together, this great masterpiece. And it's like an ancient magic. The, the sound going, you know, back to the first thing that there might have been, a sound. And then all of the, the tribes and the cultures in the world that have had some way to gather. It's really, it's spirit. And uh, it's like intangible, but it's, it's so visible and we, we feel it. And it's a, just a wonderful example for, I think, every town to have something of this nature. That was Hilary Hendricks, Brenda Buchanan, Drew Handy, Luke Nestler, Carla Lewis, James Gorman, John Colson, Jeff Dickinson, Bob Schultz, Jim Ryan, John Gorman, John Stroud, Peggy DeVilbis, Rib Katz, Wick Moses, Stacy Dickerson, Barb Bush, Olivia Pevick, and Terry Glasnap, Mountain Fair volunteers all. Stay tuned as we consider the growing pains of the 70s and 80s, the magic of the fair, the challenges, and all the great music that make up the story of the Carbondale Mountain Fair. This podcast was created with the same love and care that the Carbondale Mountain Fair has been created with for 50 years. Special thanks go to Luke Nessler, Amy Kimberly, Terry Glassnap, Steve Cole, Carbondale Arts, Katie and Kay, and the Carbondale Historical Society.